For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, why the Women's March was just a first step. Acclaimed actor Geza Rorick shares his perspective on remembering the Holocaust. And find out about the new Arizona Highways Wildlife Guide. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Political rallies and marches are an American tradition, guaranteed by the First Amendment of our Constitution. Some of the most famous marches, like the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, go down in history as the turning point for a political movement. On January 21st, an estimated 3 million people in more than 600 cities around the world marched on behalf of women's rights. Laura Markowitz talks to Tucson activists about what happens after the march is over. An estimated 15,000 people showed up for the Women's March in Tucson. It took place downtown the day after President Trump was inaugurated. We have to defend our rights. That's Elvis Akko. He's from South Africa. I was thinking, man, I don't think I'm going to go tomorrow because it's going to be cold. It says 6% chance of rain. There was this lone protester, and he had a sign out there in the street, and some people would flip him off. But I thought to myself, I mean, this guy, he's making his voice heard. This is is what we do for each other. We make each other braver. Karen Wyndham has never met Akko before, but she likes his sign. In Russia, we distrust. It's a demonstration, so many of the marchers here carry signs. The messages express concern over President Trump's proposed agenda on immigration, the environment, health care, women's reproductive rights, and more. I have nothing but concerns. Eve Rifkin is an educator and mother of a five-year-old. And I'm really, really looking for something to feel a little bit of hope around, and it's not going to come from him. It's here at the march. Thank you. (laughs) Zach won't give his last name. He says he's a U.S. history teacher. So tell me about your sign. It's better to show up than to give up. That's democracy at work. After the march ends, everyone takes their signs and goes home. Now what? How does a march turn into a movement? Organizers who identify as liberal, progressive, Democrat have an unexpected role model. What would the Tea Party do? Kristen Randall identifies as a progressive. Whether or not you agree with their politics, it doesn't matter. Their strategy was great and it worked. Indivisible is a national movement that was started by congressional staffers. They had witnessed firsthand the effectiveness of the Tea Party's strategy during the Obama years. Since December, 4,300 indivisible groups have sprouted up across the country. Indivisible is focused on 
resisting the Trump agenda in a local and defensive way. You want to pass this? I'm going to say no to that. You're not putting forth alternative policies. You're just trying to block what's being proposed. That's it. Randall has a busy job as a hydrologist, and she's the mother of two, so spare time is in short supply. But she made time to launch Indivisible Southern Arizona. I think the reason why I have time to do this is because if I didn't, I, I would be crying. <laughs> Randall's group has close to 1,000 members. Indivisible Southern Arizona's first action took place at Congresswoman Martha McSally's Tucson office. The demonstrators pressured her to hold a town hall meeting. So far, it hasn't happened. Energy and enthusiasm are high right now, but will that energy still be here six months from now or four years from now? This is what the Tea Party did. They didn't show up two weeks after Obama was in office and then disappear. They were busy. They had jobs too and, and families, but they showed up and they squeezed in to their busy schedules what, what they were passionate about. Yeah, what would the Tea Party do? So one of the things we have to work on here is this get involved tab. Yeah, I hadn't seen that before. Tamarella Chrysworth and Ruth Bunny Davis co-founded a new organization to help Arizonans engage with local politics. So www.azpublicsquare.org. That's Chrysworth. Last year, she started feeling frustrated when she heard people say that their vote didn't matter. They didn't make a connection between the bills that were being voted on in the state legislature and issues going on in their own neighborhoods. AZPublicSquare.org posts an easy-to-read summary of bills. Davis is a retired lawyer and translates the legal jargon into plain language. This is the bill that they're trying to pass in the legislature. These are the people that are going to be pushing this bill forward. If you do not like it or if you do like it, either way, that's who you have to contact. And they can find their legislator. We provide links. And basic information about what elected officials do. This is what a school board member does. Would you like to become a school board member? This is how you would do it. This is about being an American and being an Arizonan and being a citizen. And it doesn't matter what your partisan politics are. I am so thrilled about all of the different kinds of movements that are springing up, like Arizona Public Square. Kelly Fryer is CEO of the YWCA of Southern Arizona. There's a whole ecosystem that needs to exist in order for social change to happen. We need women's marches. We need Indivisible Tucson. We also need folks that are working at the electoral process and at the institutional level. The YWCA is offering its institutional support to grassroots organizers through their Stand Together Arizona Training and Advocacy Center. STAT for short, as in this is work that can't wait. It's one of the things that we've been hearing from these grassroots activists. We need to know what else is happening in the state. We need to know what everybody's doing, and we need to figure out what's next. In February, we'll be pulling together the activists that planned the 11 women's marches across the state. To come up with a common agenda. You know, with 40,000 people who marched on the 21st of January across the state of Arizona, we have an opportunity right now to really galvanize that energy to make meaningful change. But it will take work. This is what Kelly Fryer told the crowd at the Women's March. The last thing 
that any of us should feel when we go home today is better. We can't feel good. We can't feel comfortable. We can't sit on our couches and do nothing because we thought, well, we marched today. Friends, that is just the beginning. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. The Holocaust drama Son of Saul was winner of last year's Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Few who saw it will forget the haunted look of its star, Geza Rorig. Almost a complete unknown before that critically acclaimed performance, Rorig is an actor, poet, musician, and New Yorker who was born in Hungary in 1967. He first rebelled against the communist police state there in his teens by starting a punk band and practicing civil disobedience. This led to him studying art in Krakow, Poland, and later a conversion to Judaism because of a personal experience that he will tell us about. Rorig will also visit Tucson next week to deliver an address in honor of Holocaust remembrance. I started our interview by asking him to describe how it felt when he first visited the site of the Auschwitz concentration camp. Surprising, because by then I I read so much about what happened there. And I knew from Budapest, um, my grandfather, who was a survivor himself, used to have a um, Thursday night uh, coming friends over to play cards. And I heard every story 500 times, because old people tend to tell things many times. And I sort of felt like I'm very familiar. Yeah with the ins and the outs. When I went there, I, I sort of thought it's going to be like when you go to a museum and you check out paintings that you have seen so many times in reproduction. This was different. It didn't let me go. It, it was very healing. It wasn't at all sort of like, let's get the hell out of here. This is too much, too dark or anything like that. More like... I belong there sort of thing. Are they really going to close this down in one hour? I'm not done. So I returned the next day. And on the third day, I knew that this is actually my duty. My only way is to get the bottom of this, whatever this is. So I basically went there. I rented a room and I went there for a whole month um, for opening to closing every single day. When you say that you wanted to get to the bottom of, of what was there and or somehow yeah. ex- explore that, in what way did you accomplish that goal? Well, not in a sense of thinking myself out of it. You know, when, you know, I was somewhat aware of that. You know, the Holocaust didn't start with Adolf Hitler's birthday, um, that this has a long line of history that is deeply connected with the development of Christianity and Europe that has historical roots, theological roots and all that. But what I mean to get the bottom of it, I mean it in a much more personal sense. I felt that this is very much my problem. And uh, at one point I was so frustrated that I uh, draw a circle in the snow around me and I literally said, which is an old sort of a Talmudic practice, is that I'm not going to leave this circle until, you know, I know what I don't know yet. 
understand that it sounds dramatic, but was more like sort of like a fun pressure on God. Try to pressure, make a little <laughs> pressure on God. Like, look, first of all, this is traditional thing to do. Just draw a circle and 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 sort of threaten him to say, like, look, you're gonna find a skeleton here soon enough if you're if if you're not helping me out with some sort of a an advice or inspiration or something. And it helped. It did help. I, after a while, I felt like I'm not alone in the circle. And um, and once I wasn't alone in the circle, I, 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 it's not something that I, it's easy to translate to words. But as I basically, if I would say, for about 30 days, I was slowly but surely lost my faith in man. And what else is there in the universe? As a Jew, my response, so to speak, to this place, the only response that I can imagine is to become like one of those who were murdered here. And I cannot become two of those, but I, I can at least become one of them. I decided when I stepped out from that circle that I do not go back to Hungary, but I'm going to go to Israel. I felt that I have to learn this tradition, to open the envelope. And the masters were murdered in Hungary, so to speak. I grew up in the killing zone. There were no rabbis left, and all the rabbis who I knew knew very little. Even I could tell that. So I thought Israel is, is the right place. And I was right. It was the right place. So I moved to Israel. And when I met my first wife in Israel, 1994, that's when I came to Brooklyn. You stepped out of obscurity onto the world stage because of the film known in English as Son of Saul. Yeah. And now here, uh, in just uh, you know a few days, you will be in Tucson, Arizona, addressing a crowd of people on the event of the Elizabeth Liebson Holocaust Remembrance. How did you feel when you were asked to come here? And is this something that even three, four, five years ago, you would have ever imagined you would find yourself doing? I didn't, but uh, it's not the first thing I haven't imagined. It did come <laughs> true in, in my life. Good or bad, you know, it's all, all lots of surprises somehow in my life. I get, I get my fair share of those. When I got the call to do this, you know, it's it's not the first and not the last one. I feel a moral obligation to go places and um, speak about, about this uh, for two reasons. One is, this is just, I feel like we owe this. We, I, I certainly owe this to the victims. It's just, uh, you know, to keep their memory alive and, and you know, make sure people are vigilant. This is us. This is what we can do. But I also do this in order to tell whoever is out there to listen that this negative experience, either in our personal lives or on a national level, cannot take a central place in our identity, in our lives. In other words, if the Holocaust 
And I know, I know very sad examples, people who exemplify that. If the Holocaust lessens or paralyzes our capacity of joy, then I think we did a terrible misservice, so to speak, to the victims, because they want us to remember them, that's for sure, but, but they, they didn't want us to get stuck with this and, and somehow unable to live our lives. There's a lot of sort of like God is dead and this sort of shallow talk out there. It's a terrible mistake to somehow to absolutize, to universalize, and sort of to make Auschwitz somehow galactic, cosmic, and and this this should be the final word on human existence. And and I know people who try to do and build such such barricades, and they they shout, you know, terribly poisonous things, you know. Claiming somehow to to be um, just to what happened, but that's the, but that, I, I fight that. So part part of my message is to remind people, and and it's very important because kids, you know, I'm a father of four. Everybody's living online. People think yeah, last week is antiquity. So yeah. it's important to know what happened. Yeah. On the other hand, let's not the Holocaust or any genocide for that matter, be used in an unfair and, 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 and dangerous you know, way. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's my double mission. What you say about last week being antiquity, that's, that's another great quote. But yeah. I think about the fact that in 2015, the Holocaust History Center opened here in Tucson. And I was speaking with Brian Davis yesterday, and he was telling me about the increase in the number of people who were visiting the center the number of people who are volunteering their time. It's increased in an incredible way that he never could have foreseen in 2015. And even the film Son of Saul was made around that same time. And yet here, the Holocaust History Center in Tucson and the film that you and, and your colleagues made have a resonance that is serving a purpose that you didn't even anticipate three or four years ago. Um, yeah. That to me is 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 remarkable and hopeful. You know, I like the positive tone of your of your last remark. I'm I'm a tiny bit more cautious about that, just because I think, at least in 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 within the Jewish community, what is going on is that I think we are preparing ourselves to lose the survivors among us. They say that's about a hundred, hundred twenty survivors is dying a day. And the people who are in their mid-80s now, they were 14 years old at the time of the liberation. Yes, only the children remain. Right. So that that means that we are literally having, you know, the very few last ones for another very few years. And the ones who we have now and cherish their presence and invite them over and, and listen to them, these are people who were 14. Right. What the 14 years old can remember, for God's sake, they didn't have their own kids. They didn't have their own wives and husbands. So not to say, of course, that this in any way would make their suffering less or relative. But, you know, the people who were 30, 40 are all gone. Now the kids are about to leave us. And soon, 
what we call the Holocaust will be history, abstract. There will be no real, you know, flesh and blood people to it, those statued people who can actually testify for it. And that, I think, it's a major shift. I'm not sure we are ready for that. So what, when this movie was doing so well, I think partly the, the reason is because people are panicking. People are very worried that these museums will be simply sort of empty 50 years from now. That That what we see is like a living person who feels a bit better right before dying. It's sort of like the last kick of the issue. <laughs> and and um, and so the question really is, some people think this is the time to finalize our notion of what we think about the Holocaust. There will be no movies done about this 50 years from now. And I think that's right. I think world politics is shifting away slowly but surely from Europe and America. I think other parts of the world are getting more, you know, to say and closer to the center. Asia, Africa, they have their own troubles. And the Holocaust has to take its own place. And that place eventually is not going to be what the place was in the American conscience at the time of Schindler's List or even now. It will pale, and we and we have to we have to uh, be okay with that. Geza Rorig will be the featured guest at the 2017 Elizabeth Liebson Holocaust Remembrance Lecture at 7 p.m. on Thursday, February 9th at Holesclaw Hall on the U of A campus. It's a presentation of the Holocaust History Center and the Jewish History Museum. We have a link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Arizona Highways has released a new wildlife guide, one that focuses on some of the most fascinating species that are native to our state. Here is author, naturalist, and wildlife illustrator Beth Surtit with a behind-the-scenes look. I decided the best way to get to know the book was to use it. In my interview with author Brooke Besseson, I asked her how did she narrow down her list to 125 species. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a feat, actually. Um, there are about 1,500 known species in the state of Arizona, and I originally proposed doing four to 500 of those. Of course, that didn't fly because nobody wanted to carry a book that big. So I had to formulate a shorter list. And in order to do that, I looked at three criteria. One, most commonly seen. Two, those animals that are iconic in our state. And three, the animals that I thought were particularly interesting, something that would uh, be new for a reader. So then I had to ask input from knowledgeable friends, including Peggy Coleman, photographer, who sent me her top 40 birds, and that really helped me. And of course, the team at Arizona Game and Fish Department also weighed in on the list, and we managed to get the, the list down to what is listed on the title as 125 native species. There are actually a lot more animals in the book, and that's because I was able to add notes for similar species. So, for example, on the Harris's hawk page, I give details for the black hawk as a, quote, similar species. It was really helpful 
Not everyone that I've written about or who's shown up in my yard was there, but the similar species were. So you talk about the regal horn lizard, but the photograph is of a shorthorn lizard. The bat that I drew, the Townsend's big-eared bat, is not there, but the other bats that I talk about, the pallid bat, the one that looks like a little pig, and mm-hmm. the... Um, and eats scorpions. Tears off the pincers first. Pallid's mm-hmm. in there. The uh, wonderful Mexican free-tailed bats that fly out from under Campbell Street Bridge, they're there. What do you think is the best way to use the book? When I started working on the guidebook, I actually conceived of another book about the same time. My most recent children's book, Zachary Z. Packrat, Backpacks the Grand Canyon. These two books may seem completely disparate, but honestly, they're a little like fraternal twins in my heart. Um, In Zachary, he carries a guidebook. In the picture book, Zachary carries a guidebook. And that's because I wanted the reading experience to be interactive. So instead of naming the animals throughout the book, the animals that Zachary encounters during his Grand Canyon adventure, readers have to go to the back into the guidebook pages and look those animals up. And I feel like that's really how we use it in the wild. We see an animal we don't know, and we go and we look them up. And so whether you're spotting critters from along the trail or maybe even just from your kitchen window, you just can pull the book out and open it up and see if you can figure out what you're looking at. Of course, you can use it if you're writing a report on animals as well. That's another great way to use it. I tried to meet the needs of a lot of different kinds of readers. I enjoyed that you've offered up specific traits. Vultures can sniff rotting flesh from 50 miles away. A baby porcupine is a porcupet. How cute is that? I think the reason I love animals so much is because I find them incredibly fascinating. And in some part, it is because of those rare and interesting little tidbits that I've discovered along the way. And so I really wanted to be able to share those with readers. There's also a very helpful series that appears throughout the book called Living with Wildlife. Would you talk about that? They're little inserts that I think really came out of my work as a wildlife rehabilitation volunteer. I do rescue and rehabilitation with Liberty Wildlife. And so many of the interactions that people have with wildlife uh, that end up being difficult or confusing or scary is is often based in a lack of education. And so the Living with Wildlife segments were an opportunity to offer people tips and even some little tricks about how to work with uh, animals or how to know if an animal is injured. And I'll give you an example of this. Hummingbirds have a very, very fast metabolism. And because of that, people think that they drink nectar as their main food source, but that is not true. The nectar actually fuels the metabolism for them to actually catch insects, which is their protein and their other source of nutrients. And so because the metabolism is so high, when it comes to nighttime, they have to really slow down and they go into a state which we call torpor, which is a very slow metabolism where their heart rate, their body temperature, everything, so that they just slow way, way down. And that way they conserve resources until the following morning when they can get up and begin eating again. So on cool mornings, sometimes people will end up finding these little hummingbirds looking peaked is the word they would probably use. And they think, oh my goodness, something has to be done. And they want to run over and scoop up the little bird and rush them off to the rehab center. When in fact, that animal just needs a little more sunlight and a little bit of warmth to get their body revved back up and off they'll be for another day of eating. I know the feeling. Me too. (laughs) One of the things that I did differently with this book was I used it as you've just described 
But then I just sat down and started reading it. Now I have a bigger bucket list of things that I have to see, like the <laughs> spotted skunk. What a <laughs> cutie, be- right? Beautiful pattern. Not long after the book arrived, I went for an early morning swim and met a very tired toad in the deep end of the swimming pool. And I knew what I was supposed to look for. I knew if I was supposed to look for a certain size or whether or not it had warts on the corner of its mouth and whether or not I was, it was okay to just pick it up with my hand. I did end up picking up a spade foot and there was that ooh moment because its belly feels something like an egg yolk raw or the inside of an overcooked marshmallow. And, <laughs> and then I put it on the edge of the pool and it's got the most fascinating eyes I've ever seen. It looks like a Venetian glass bead with gold flecks in it. We just sat there and looked at each other. If I hadn't looked at the book first, I wouldn't have known what to look for in terms of identification. This is my fifth book with Arizona Highways, and they were careful to select photos that would allow identification, but that didn't lose the beauty of of the real imagery that the magazine and the books are known for. Throughout the making of this book, I had my own multitude of discoveries, um, which I hope that I was able to pass forward to the readers, that they may have those same discoveries alongside me. Doris Evans contributed photographs to the Arizona Highways Wildlife Guide. I asked her to tell the story behind a favorite photograph of hers. In the mornings, my husband and I take a walk around our neighborhood. We live on the northwest side of Tucson. And I always have my camera along. You never know. There are always birds. And sometimes there's a coyote or a bobcat or a javelina, or it could be anything else. Well, one day, this was early summer... We had just rounded the corner going back to our house, and in the distance, in a Palo Verde tree, I saw this long black thing, and I thought, what is that? Did someone throw a rope or a fan belt up in the tree? And as I got a bit closer, I realized it was a snake. It was a coach whip snake. Now, these are very agile snakes. They can grow to be five, I think even six feet in length. They're mostly black, and they have some pink and some pattern on as well. They're all a little bit different. And sure enough, it was a coach whip snake. And it was about, oh, five to six feet up off the ground. So I got up there, and I took some photos and talked to it and went back home. And um, the next day, it was there almost in the same place. And as I'm looking at this, a neighbor came jogging along, coming right by the snake next to me. She didn't see it. And I showed her the snake, and she, oh, she wouldn't have seen it. A day or so later, the snake was back. And this time, two fellows, I saw them coming from the distance as I was walking up, and they walked right by within a couple feet of their heads to the snake. And I said, hey, do you see the snake? No. They hadn't seen it, so I pointed it out. And one fellow was not real fond of snakes. He sort of freaked out. And the same thing happened a day or so later. And so I was quite amused when uh, this book came out, and there's my snake, the snake that no one saw, is finally in the book. I also found as I looked through the book that I saw so many that I was taken with, and they were by Peggy Coleman. Mm -hmm. There's one of a jumping coyote, it's up in the air. It's got its oh, paws Isn't that an up. amazing photo? And it's so focused in what we can't see hidden in the grasses. Mm-hmm. And although I've talked about people who've contributed many photographs, there's one stellar photograph by Robert Rinsom of 
pronghorns. Yes. They can go 70 miles an hour. And he managed to find them standing still in a herd in these beautiful, light, golden grasses. I often say that when somebody tells me a story about a critter, I learn as much about the person as I do about the critter. I could see that in the photographs, too. These are people who want to know what the personality is of these animals. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for getting the best photos? Well, one thing would be just to keep your eyes open, be aware of your surroundings. Again, in our morning walks, I'll see all kinds of interesting things, and people walk by and they haven't seen them. So I think just be aware. You see a little motion somewhere, stop and take a look. And have the camera ready if if you want to take photos, and you will learn so much. Beth Serdit spoke with author Brooke Bessesen and photographer Doris Evans about the Arizona Highways Wildlife Guide. The author, designer, and eight photographers will be at Antigone Books on Friday, February 10th at 7 p.m. for a reading, Q&A, and book signing. You can find more information and see the photos that were discussed in the interview on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening. You can also find podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.